Hello and welcome to Brook Talks America. This is a new podcast series called Tactical Tuesday based on the Tactical Wisdom Book series by Joe Dolio. For whoever might not know, Joe is a U.S. Marine Corps military police, career security and investigations professional, certified fraud examiner, and certified forensic interviewer. He is a Kayo Sanim instructor in the Korean martial art of Tang Soo Do, hope I'm saying that right, as well as being a Krav Maga instructor. And of course, he's the author of the Tactical Wisdom series, which is why we're doing the podcast series. And with that, welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. You did a pretty, uh, pretty admirable job there. It's actually pseudo, <laughs> but you did a good job. Well, I've never said those words, so I tried to be very careful. I always try to pronounce things right. So we're friends on Twitter, and I had seen your books, which I got, of course. And I had been, you know, I have been thinking about this for a while, of having. I was going to do something like maybe Military Monday, but then I thought Tactical Tuesday, sort of a generic way a series podcast series for people to learn about generic prepping, you know, preparedness, because I don't think a lot of people know practical steps that anybody can take when the shit hits the fan. Right. You know, in your book books about, yeah. Yeah. In your book, it comprises everything from situational and geographic awareness to first aid supply kits, etc. We'll be doing a podcast for each chapter of the book uh, with the information everyone can use to deal um, with what you call without rule of law and which you think is coming. I do, too. Whatever happens, be it local chaos or some kind of national situation, everybody should prepare as much as possible. But I wanted to get a little background about you. So you came about writing the book in a kind of roundabout way. Uh, I'd like you to explain how the circumstances of your life led you to the Every Man a Warrior program, which led you to the Bible, and then helped to create the blog, which led to the books. Sure. So at, at a point in my life, I was doing pretty much everything wrong, right? Making every mistake that a man could make and doing everything I could that that set me down the wrong path. And... Uh, so the decision was made, uh, advice was given by Miss Allie, my number one counselor in life, uh, that I should try the Every Man a Warrior program uh, at church. And, you know, being a being a big tough guy that I am, I thought sitting <laughs> around with a bunch of dudes talking about my problems is not my thing. Um, but you know what? I gave it a shot and it and it really was a was a cool thing. But the first time I went through it, I didn't get a lot from it because the rest of the guys didn't really dig in and, and do all the homework and do all the memorization and all that kind of stuff. So I came out of it with kind of mixed feelings, right? It, it, it had turned me back on the right path, but I didn't get everything from it I wanted to. I talked to the guy who led the program at the church. He goes, well, listen, I want to pair you up again with, with a different group. And this group it was fantastic. Everyone pushed each other to do the homework. Uh, it opened my eyes. And so what the program teaches men, uh, it's, it's a men's program, and it teaches men to get more into the word and learn how to apply it to your life and learn how to actually not just look at what the what the pastor tells you on Sunday, but to get into the Bible and find your own truth and find things that apply directly to you. Mm-hmm. So um, as I was going through the, this program, I, I started leading a group, right? And so as I'm leading it, and each week we're sharing what we found in the Bible that week, right? So I would share these great adventure stories that are in there. And these people are like, where are you finding that? <laughs> like, it's all right there in the Bible, right? So if you actually get in and you dig into it, there are there are war stories, there are adventure stories, there are spies and government agents and all of that going on. And when you start analyzing it, 
The situation expressed in the Bible is not that different from where we are now. There was an oppressive government. Mm-hmm. There were people seeking freedom who were being oppressed and had to hide from them and, and run around and organize. So I was finding these stories. These other guys like, wow, that's a really cool take. I never thought of it that way. And so um, this one guy said to me, he says, well, how can you as somebody involved in self-defense yet be a Christian? How can you say that you would take another person's life in self-defense? And I said, well, well that's kind of a weird question. Where, where are you getting this from? He goes, well, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. And uh, I said, well, that's actually a misconception. That's not what the Bible says. Did you know that, Brooke? No. The Bible does not say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. Murder, yes. Okay, yeah. So there is a big difference, right? Yeah. And so when I explained to this guy, I said, so if you think the Bible is true, uh, and you do, you can't believe that God would say thou shalt not kill, and then the very next person he talks to, Joshua, after Moses, he wouldn't tell Joshua to go and put people's heads on spikes. But he did. (laughs) So um, self-defense is, is inherently lawful to the Bible, right? And it's it's one of your basic rights as a human being. So when I gave that, that discussion to him, he's like, wow, man, you ought to write that down. And another guy told me the same thing. He said, you know what? The way you express ideas, not just from the Bible in everyday life, you should probably start writing a blog. So I did. And the blog just took off. I mean, it's it wildly popular. People really like the idea of, of there are certain things in the Bible that – when you look at them on face value, it doesn't seem to mean a whole lot. But when you apply them to preparedness and survival, there's a world of new knowledge in there. For example, the story of the Good Samaritan. We all know that story. And it talks about uh, how the Samaritan, who had never gone to a church, was more in compliance with God's law by helping the man who was injured than the priest was because the priest walked away from him, right? But I take that to mean more than just you should help your fellow man. The Good Samaritan literally did first aid. It says he bandaged his wounds, treated him with oil, and took him somewhere. So that means that that's something we should all be considering and able to do. And so finding these different things, people thought, wow, that's really cool. And that kind of snowballed, and and people said, man, maybe you should write a book. And uh, you know, half the people who said, maybe you should write a book, I think they were being a little sarcastic because (laughs) – I don't know. But um, so that's kind of where we ended up with. I wrote one book and I've got a actually an entire series planned now. Very good. And l- let me ask you, what do they say about about the um, turn the other cheek part? OK, so this is this is this is when I get a lot right. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And it begins first. Let's back up a little bit. When people tell you Jesus was a pacifist, Jesus was in no way, shape or form a pacifist. Uh, he made his own weapons. He he went in and he, he uh, overturned all the tables in the temple. So when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he was essentially saying, give someone another chance. He wasn't saying, let them walk all over you. You can only turn one cheek, right? You can't, you didn't say keep turning the cheek. He said, turn the other cheek. So um, when I get that pushback, I say, he's saying, give someone another chance, but that doesn't mean let them walk all over you. You, you, you give them one chance and then that's it. Yeah, it's so... You know, people selective people select things that they want to hear out of it. But I think it's very interesting because it's they use that a lot, right? So the left, like with regard to the, you know, the left doesn't need to turn the other cheek, but we need to just say, Oh, you can say whatever you want about us, but we're not supposed to do anything. You can hit us and beat us and kick us and everything, but we're not supposed to do anything back. I don't think so. But um that would I, be our downfall. Yeah. And it, it's part of what, you know, the Republican Party is 
it, that's part of the problem is they somehow or another, they want to be nice, you know, nice to the people that want to kill them. So, well, I'll tell you, Jesus told his, uh, his disciples to always be armed, right? He said, when you go out on the road, always take at least a staff. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. See. So that's not the act of a peaceful man. And Ephesians 6.10, right? Right. Put on the full armor of the Lord and your, your shield and your sword. So I think a lot of people think about prepping in a certain way, right? They think it's, there's a bunch of shows out there and I, I find it very, I, I actually like that there are shows because the average person is looking at things, you know, they're coming across and seeing things on television that they wouldn't necessarily think about. It's, I think it's helpful for the average person to look at that. But a lot of those are like super duper bunkers in the middle of the woods, or they have thousands of dollars worth of canned goods in the basement. And those are great, you know, if people can afford it. But for those who can't, like the average person, when the, when the shit hits the fan, you have to know about like in your neighborhood or something like that, the issues that you're going to need to to deal with and what you're going to do, where you're going to go and everything about basic preparedness skills to survive in a lawless environment. Probably a lot of things they hadn't even thought of. Well, that's true. And you have to really consider your neighborhood from two perspectives. Um, one is who can help you, but the other one is who's not going to be a help. Uh, on my blog, I told a story from the, la- the latest um, conflict that there was in Israel. And there was a woman, um, I forget her name, but it's on my blog. She lived in a neighborhood that was mixed, right? It was it was half Muslim, half Jewish. And everyone loved each other. Everyone came over for the barbecues. The kids played together. The parents all knew each other. But that night when the rioting started, she noticed that her neighbors met the rioters at the end of the street and immediately pointed out her house and mm-hmm. her vehicles. So they were able to escape the neighborhood before anything happened, but they did lose um, two vehicles to fire. Your neighbors are your friends now, but after week four of there being no power and no food and their kids haven't eaten for three or four days, but they know you have food, you need to be thinking about that too. Yeah. Yeah. And things are different now. There, There's not so much small town Americana anymore. Things are neighborhoods and, and communities are a lot more transient than they were. Like I'm from Miami. I grew up in a small, the the place, the town where I grew up in was this very small, you know, sleepy little town, but it's not like that at all. It's very international, cosmopolitan, very transient. And it's not, it's not anything like that. I, and I don't really know any of my neighbors here. It's, it's not like that here either. So I wouldn't really, other than my friends, I wouldn't I wouldn't know any of my neighbors to call that I would trust. Well, see, that's it. Uh, our, our modern society has made it so that we're a lot more introverted. Most of the neighbors here, if you watch them throughout the day, they leave the house, they put their head down and walk to their car saying, I hope none of my neighbors talk to me. I hope none of my neighbors talk. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then they get in their car and they drive away. Um, yeah. You know, we know the neighbors on both sides and we talk to them. But beyond that, not really. I talk to the two other Marines in the neighborhood because that's just what we do. Yeah. Um. Uh, we kind of gravitate and find each other no matter what. But but see, that's kind of the whole point. You mentioned we used to have um, this small town America feel. And I mentioned this in my books and on my blog that in as recently as the 50s, every man in America had the capability to go out and camp. He could uh-huh. sleep under the stars or even without a tent. He could fish. He could hunt. He could start a fire. Do you think that's possible now? Not for most. Exactly. For military people, I think they, they still have those skills, but the general public, and you mentioned in the book about the scouting. I mean, they've destroyed scouting, so they're not teaching Absolutely. that. 
So that's that's actually an important point. Um, General Baden Powell created scouting because during the Boer War in Africa, uh, he learned that he had to retrain all of these urban London boys on how to actually live in the field as they were fighting this war in South Africa. So when he came back, he said, you know what, there, there's going to be a big war coming because World War One was just looming on the horizon. So he started scouting to get people out and back into those kind of skills. And so scouting was great for that, probably right up until the late 80s when I was a Boy Scout. Um, and now it's it's gone so far away. I, I went with my son's Boy Scout troop on a camp uh, uh, it was quite a while ago because my son's 25 now. But um, we went on a camp and like everything was electronic. They used grills, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they didn't do much outdoors. So we took them a couple weeks later. On a when Mr. Dolio and Mr. Coleman were scouts camping weekend, there's no grills, no um, no electronics allowed, all this stuff. And while the boys grumbled on the first night, by the end of the weekend, it was the best time they'd ever had. Mm-hmm. So it's important that people learn these skills because this moment in time that we're living in is just the smallest fraction of human history. Peace yeah. is not man's natural state, right? Exactly. Well, and, you know, a lot of this, I call it the softening of, you know, of society and is due to the computer, right, technology and everything like that. And the, it's culture too. So I, I believe, I I imagine you probably believe the left went after scouting, particularly because it was, you know, they go after YMCA because it's anything associated with Christian Christianity. So scouting was basically a moral foundation, you know, teaching men and boys how to be men. Right. And they don't like any of those sort of precepts. So that's one of the reasons they went after it. They also don't like independence. So they don't want men and boys to be independent, to be men and to be self-sufficient. They want all of all people to depend on the government. You're you're 100 right, and and the Boy Scouts was one that, while it pushed um, values and morals, it allowed religious freedom. Right? There were right. awards for every religion in the world. Right? And and that's why when you look at my 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 blog and my website I, and, and on my books, I have the Jerusalem cross as my symbol. Uh, I have the Jerusalem cross because the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem was the first major kingdom that allowed religious freedom. And it allowed people of every faith to come into Jerusalem and practice their faith. Um, hadn't been that way before. Really hasn't been that way very much since. Um, so that's why I adopted it. And that's the one thing that the left hates is freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. Unless it's for abortion. Oh, exactly, right? <laughs> or gender reassignment surgery, which they want you to pay for too, by the way. Uh, so, you know, I went through Hurricane Andrew in Miami. And like with Katrina, you know, and other places, but those two kind of like crazy examples, there was three and a half weeks before we had power, right? It was so devastated that the guard came in. Even like I said, back then we were more of a community, but you mentioned in the book, people wouldn't necessarily react that way. What do you think about, you know, we see examples of like the Cajun Navy, those guys, the, when when the when it hit the fan later, you know, a few years ago, they came out. Tell me, tell me what you think. Do you think the Cajun Navy is conservative in nature or liberal in nature? Of course, conservative. <laughs> I think that they live by a different moral code in that yes. part of the world uh, than than a lot of others do. Yeah. Um, I responded to Hurricane Sandy, and uh, I actually wrote out Sandy in the in the in top of a hotel, which 
you know, somebody else arranged my hotel and we get there and turn on the news and it says, do not stay in the top room of a hotel. I was like, oh, yeah. great. Thank you. Thank you for booking this room for me. But anyway, uh, I noticed a very different environment when we went into neighborhoods there. Um, I, I worked for a major retailer and we were just checking our stores to make sure nobody was looting them. And we were trying to help as many people as we could. And we carried around cases of water in our car. But what I noticed there versus the Hurricane Katrina response was that people weren't reaching out to help each other up there in the Northeast. People up there were kind of standoffish and avoiding each other. And so me and a couple of the other guys were there. We saw this, this this old couple approaching a couple of stores and people were just walking by them. So we walked up to them and said, hey, what, what can we help you with? They said, well, we don't have any water at home and, and, and you know, nothing is open. So we gave them a case of water right out of the back of our car. That wouldn't have happened in the South. Hmm. Somebody else would have helped them, right? In, right. The, in the Northeast, where it's a predominantly liberal society, people are more apt to close in and not help each other. They claim that they would, but I've never actually seen it that way. I've seen the opposite. They don't, you know, there was an article that was written, I, I don't know if it was the New York Times or was some, it was actually a liberal, and he was kvetching about the fact that conservatives are much more generous and much more giving than liberals. Even, you know, even the, the rich liberals, you know, of course, the, the left has become really the party of the super rich, but that conservatives by nature are much more giving and generous and thoughtful of others. And it's always kind of the, you know, I mean, I hate to make these things political, but it's kind of like, it's part of it is like the people that will give you and help you are usually of a certain mindset, like you said, and then the other people are more than willing to spend someone else's money to help you, but yeah, not so their own. They're very quick to say, well, someone should help them, but just not me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So most people outside of big cities haven't experienced emergency situations except in like natural disasters. And even most of the BLMers were smart not to bring that bullshit into the suburbs. You notice that? Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, they say the suburbs because the suburbs are more apt to defend themselves. Yeah. So. Well, here's the problem, though. And, you know, uh, Julian Castro was trying to do this and they're going to try to do this with Biden. And I think they might actually get it through because they're going to try to do it under the civil rights. And this is the long term. You know, this is part of the long term problem of, of the stuff that we're talking about. There is a there is a bifurcation in society, whereas in the big cities, they go crazy and we say, oh, well, they're crazy and everything like that. But we're out here. Well, in my opinion, part of the HUD requirement is to be able to not only uh, change the, the suburbs. Part of it is to change the suburbs from red to blue, like where I live is a very red part of the county. And they're building all of these apartment complexes. And when you have mass when you have mass structures of apartments, you tend to have m many more liberals and Democrats. But mm -hmm. also. This is going to sound like a conspiracy, but I believe it. I don't care to embed Democrat agitators on the outskirts for when they want to agitate them. What do you think about that or activate them? No, I think that that's absolutely true. And and what I, what I found, um, I, I spent all of last summer uh, doing a project where I was inside of Antifa protests. Really? And, Where? Yeah, so, huh? In Michigan? Yeah, in Michigan and okay. Ohio and a couple of other places. Wow. Um, did some in Louisville and a few other places. But um, some of the, the the things that you learned that I learned was that um, what you're seeing on TV is not what's actually being agitated for in the streets. So they say that this was all about police brutality. 
But if you go to one of the events and you actually listen, there's a whole lot more stuff that they were actually pushing for. And in fact, I got handed a couple of documents by uh, members of, of By Any Means Necessary where they said they didn't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump. They simply wanted some sort of a socialist revolution. And that's really what they were pushing for. So in order to make that happen, you have to wedge the middle class. And, yeah. and that's when they started moving out here in Metro Detroit. They moved out into the suburbs. And what happened was the police departments and the governments in those cities, they were paralyzed. They wanted in no uncertain certain terms to not be associated with anything even remotely racist. And so what they did is they retreated from the situation. At one point, like a police car turned on the street, saw the protest, turned around and went the other way. Now, if you and I went and blocked traffic for eight minutes at a major intersection in a suburb, we would get arrested. But these people were allowed to do it because that local suburban police department didn't want the stigma of being labeled as against the George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing a really good job of rolling back into the suburbs but the problem that they got was that they were just too extreme for some of them. And, and I think that's going to be our big problem. Uh, they've withdrawn. Uh, you don't see as much. They, they kind of tried to, to muster up some numbers over the weekend for some protests, but it didn't really materialize. But you have to ask yourself, where did they go and what are they doing right now? I believe, just like, they, like you're saying, they're waiting for the next big opportunity yeah. and they're going to be pushing into the suburbs because they know they're not going to get traction in the inner city. Well, yeah, they're going to be activated. I, I, I really believe, you know, I, I say this is like, and again, people are like, what, you know, I think Obama is behind all of this. And of course, Soros, right. And all of the people that he's funding, but Obama is behind, he's a community organizer. I mean, we, we mocked him. I mocked him. And now I, I could kick myself because we see how dangerous community organizers are. And I wish we had some of them on our side, you know, that were really good like that. But um, I think he's behind it all. I think that they, you see how they disappear, how they can come out all on mass, like a snap, and they can disappear like a snap. As soon as the polling goes down, they disappeared. Well, I, I definitely agree with you on the, on the Barack Obama part. And even Nancy Pelosi, uh, she said the quiet part out loud the other day, right? She said, Barack Obama's build back. Yes. Um, yes. And, and <laughs> That's why he never left Washington, D.C. Yeah. And, and he he himself said that he wished he could have a third term where he spoke into the earpiece. And that's what he's getting. Um, I don't know what the ultimate end game is, but I know that China feels awfully emboldened mm -hmm. and that we just arranged a prisoner transfer of Chinese prisoners for Canadian citizens. And America got nothing out of it. And you have to ask yourself why. Yeah. I ask myself why on a lot of stuff. I mean, unless there's some brilliant psyop about leaving $85 billion worth of equipment in Afghanistan for the Taliban to own, unless they, we expect somehow for them to fight against China instead of collaborate with China, none of it makes any sense, especially considering that if they partner with uh, with China, China's going to have use of Bagram. So, but I, I know one thing for sure is that Obama is behind all of this, and he's a despicable coward. He's a Marxist communist. He doesn't even have the balls to come out and say it. I would at least respect him if he was willing to come out and say what he is, but, you know, he doesn't. Right on. But 
you and people like Goya and Braxton talk about what's going on with the tankers, the ships and the commodities prices, and people have no idea the craziness that can happen. Add to that whatever the dementia patient and the feds decide to do, and anyone can see trouble on the horizon. Well, a lot I, of the... Go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I frequently talk about on both my website and in my books, and it's it's in the introduction to this baseline training manual that we're going over, that at any given point in time, you're never more than 72 hours from a complete and total societal collapse. <laughs> that's that's a little bit of alarmism and a bit of extremism. But what happened in Atlanta, Georgia, when the Continental Pipeline hack occurred? By 72 hours, you couldn't get food, you couldn't get gasoline, people couldn't get to work, people didn't know what was going to happen. The same thing happened in Texas when the power went out, right? Those people didn't prepare for that cold of a winter. And after 72 hours, people were dying. Yeah. So when you analyze that and compare that with the situation on um, supply chain, uh, it's getting more and more fragile. And you just have to realize that all it's going to take is one event. And Mike Shelby, who runs a website called Ford Observer, said two days ago, if I was China, I would arrange for there to be some sort of a terrorist attack or some sort of a large event in the U.S. right now with our shaky supply chain. That's uh -huh. a observation. If we had one event right now, it would destroy what was left of our supply chain. And I don't think we would come together like we did. In the late <laughs> I totally agree. And they already did uh, a terrorist act. I think the whole thing with the Wuhan virus is an act of war. And they knew about it before the Wuhan games. And they didn't tell anybody. Well, that's true. And and, and under the uh, under the Prevention of Chemical Warfare um, Agreement, right, uh, when it's proven that one nation has launched a chemical attack, all other nations who signed that agreement are obligated to attack that nation. Uh. And it has that that's not happened. So. No, they've attacked us. They've attacked their own citizens instead of attacking China. I believe that you will see um, some of these planes that keep flying towards Taiwan. You're going to see them like like Javier Goya said today. One day they're just going to land in Taiwan and no yeah. one in the world is going to do anything about it. Yeah. No, and I isn't it isn't it interesting? So Australia is a first supposedly like from penal colony to penal colony, obviously, but it's supposedly a first world nation. Nobody in the world is criticizing them for what they're I, doing I, to their I, citizens. That's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> to to hear a guy say yesterday, I, I don't want lectures about freedom. Uh, okay, well you're supposed to be one of the freest countries in the world, yeah. and you don't be lectured about freedom. Uh, it's an absolute tyranny and something is going to need to be done about it. I think you'll see here in the next week or two, if it continues, um, some of those veterans are going to go out in the desert and dig up things that they didn't turn in. Mm, I hope so, man. I really do. I'm sorry, but you know, these are, and you watch them. I mean, the fact that the military is in control of that makes me so sick. It's just, I mean, our, you know, Millie and Austin and all, and Mackenzie and all them making me crazy here. But like, they're all beta boys. I mean, there's one guy that's like this pie faced, like such beta guys that are running this and the crazy woman, you know, she actually came out and she said the new world order. Yes. One of the Australian, uh, I don't know who she was, a spokesperson or something like that. She's They're saying the quiet part out loud now. Or, I'm sorry. She's the health minister for uh, New South Wales. Okay. She's yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about, oh, the new world order. They say, oh, you can't, what are you talking about the new world order? 
Beetlejuice in in a Chicago said it. Um, someone else said it, said it this week. She said it in in uh, New South Wales. I mean, you know what it means for the New World Order. It's like it's the Great Reset. So whatever they want to do, then they think that they're going to do. So people who love freedom need to take care of that. Well, and that's why I wanted to get this book series out, right? And, and I'm scrambling to get book three done here by the end of the month. Um, I wanted people to to have the capability to be self-reliant. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing about preparedness. You know, a few years ago, they made a bunch of TV shows about it. You mentioned them already. But if you notice, they picked the craziest yeah. <laughs> off-the-wall people because they wanted to paint those people as the crazies. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, preppers were cool. And so... For me, preparedness means self-reliance, the ability to count on yourself and not have to rely on the government or anyone else. When Even when you look at ready.gov, I talk about this all the time, um, they talk about just having a two-week supply of, of goods, right? They want you to just be self-sufficient enough to live until they can get to you and get you on the government uh, handout plan. I want you to be self-sufficient so that you are able to produce your own food, not just store your own food, but produce your own food, protect yourself, be able to fend off whatever comes. Um, and that's where the whole basis of it is. Self-sufficiency is an American concept. It's actually a Western concept because there mm-hmm. used to be a lot of British and Australian people who felt the same way. New Zealand, Rhodesia when it was around. Um, all these places believed in self-sufficiency. And we need to get back to that concept. Well, it's a logical thing for freedom loving people to want to be free and to take care of themselves and not to be dependent on the government. The problem is, is that the people that get elected cannot do that, especially the Democrats without creating dependency. So the right, the Republicans want to have people that are, you know, independent and the the Democrats want to have people that are dependent. And that's one of the things is that that would happen. And I don't, the people that sort of really are dependent. I mean, literally dependent. They get the check from the government. They have no idea because people are already mad about the gas prices, but they're not necessarily watching TV or watching economics or, you know, like we we, we just mentioned about the things you're talking about, commodities prices. They're not necessarily watching that stuff. They are mad about the gas and maybe they see mm, there's something that's not on the shelves. But when we're talking like real shortages and with all the tankers out there, the ships out there, the deliberate, you know, you and I, I know agree on this is the deliberate, um, shutting, you know, slowing down of the supply chain, you know, delivery. I don't know why they're doing that. I think it's interesting that it's in California and New York, right? Liberal states, probably some kind of environmental regulations or whatever. I don't know. You have shortages and increasing inflation, and it's very serious, those two things, particularly the inflation, and it's increasing. Well, I'll point out one thing. What big event is coming up in the next couple of months that is a huge retail driver? Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. So what part of American society are they trying to erase the most? Christmas. Christians. Christianity, because in Galatians 5.1, they say it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore... Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So if they can make this Christmas much less than ever before, they can make it irrelevant. Yeah. Well, and that's what they're trying. I mean, you see this Fauci, like they know 
they know that the polling is not good because he came out one day and he said, oh, no, you shouldn't meet. You should do virtual or something. And then the next day, oh, I was misinterpreted. No, you weren't. It was on tape. Tucker talked about it tonight. He showed the tape. So they he's this is the whole thing with Fauci the whole entire time is like they they change their mind, change the goalposts and everything like that from day to day for whatever's not going to bring them heat. They're going to say, OK, well, we didn't really mean it, even though we said it. We didn't really mean it. Well, just so, like when, uh, the, the CDC director said, yes, we're going to have mandates. And the next day she goes, well, we're not really going to have a mandate. And then a week later, we're having a mandate. Yeah. So they can't make up their mind. And the vaccines are supposed to slow are supposed to stop the spread. You cannot stop. You cannot spread it if you have the vaccine. And yet the viral load in the vaccinated is like how much I don't know the number, but many times higher than the unvaccinated. It's hundreds and, times higher. Yes. Yeah. And the people that are in the hospital and dying are like 60, 70, 80 percent vaccinated. At this point, you're more likely to to become sick from the vaccine than you yeah. are from the disease. Yeah, so. which may be part of the plan, too. It may be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've said that from day one that the vaccine. OK, so this is kind of a this is a little bit conspiracy theorist. But when you look at um, modern entertainment, you go back and look at books. Tom Clancy had two different books that involved causing a pandemic to get people to want to take a vaccine. Clive Cussler had one several different times. This has mm. appeared in in, in, a, in in pop culture, right? And now we have a disease that makes everyone want to get the vaccine. Mm. Um, and, and, and you combine that with the fact that Bill Gates himself is on audio saying vaccines are a great way to deliver sterilization. Um, it, it fits in with, with this whole global reset, uh, reducing the global population scenario. Yeah, and a Democrat came out this week and wants to put forth a bill to mandate sterilization, I think, after three kids or something like that. Yeah, I think I commented on that last night. It's, it, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. Three kids or your 40th birthday, whichever comes first. Yeah. Uh, there, There is no way in which that is a government function, and these people need to be stopped. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they're actually saying something like that out loud. And this the thing that's stunning to me, particularly about this one Democrat, he's black. Didn't they want to sterilize black women? Like you're going to put this forward when the the you support Planned Parenthood that was founded by a racist eugenicist and it's basically black infant um genocide for like 40% of all abortions by black are black babies and you're putting this forward and like everything is upside down. They're they're advocating everything that they were bitching about five minutes ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so since the rhetoric is going up, the best solution is to prepare. Yeah. So if you had one tip from this intro segment to suggest people start thinking about, would it be your mutual assistance group? Uh, if so, what uh, who who should that entail? And if something else, what would that be? OK, so there are two things that I think everyone should take away. One is the mutual assistance group. Um, you cannot do it yourself. Um, in, in, the, in a without rule of law situation like we saw after Katrina or like we would see in the event of a civil war in America, you have to sleep sometime and somebody has to be providing security sometime. Yes. So those things are not compatible. You need a team. You're going to need not just one or two other people. You're going to need a whole group, a couple of families banded together um, to survive. So. That's the first one. Find a tribe. 
right? Mm-hmm. Find your tribe and, 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 and start training together, practicing together, preparing together. The other one is fully embrace the understanding that you are never more than 72 hours away from mm. the total collapse. Facebook was down for six hours today, and anyone under the age of 30 nearly went insane. <laughs> it's true. And right? Instagram, yeah. I would actually think there might have been suicides today, and I'm not joking about that. It's not funny, but it's I'm, I'm serious. Seriously, right. Yeah. So imagine seven days, eight days. Yeah. So um, understand that that no matter how modern your life seems, in 72 hours, it'll be totally different. So the example I use is Ukraine. The Ukraine was a yeah. modern Western society. Um, and there were protests going on in the Capitol, and everyone said, ah, it's just those kids in the Capitol, just those kids in the Capitol. And then on that one weekend in 2014, in a matter of 72 hours, those kids overthrew the government. So then these people in the outlying parts of the country, the conservatives, were like, whoa, what just happened here? And so they began to form militias. But here's the problem. Now, in the eyes of international law, since those kids overthrew the government and are now the legitimate government, you're the outlaws. Mm. And that's the lesson we need to learn. Right. Wow. And yeah. so and from there, another 72 hours go by and they end up being invaded by Russia. There's no power in, in the in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions uh, on a consistent basis now. And there's still no water. And it's been it's been what now five, six years and it's still ongoing. So you have to understand that your entire life can change in 72 hours and you need to prepare for that more than anything else. Well, and also, I mean, the one of the things people sort of a lot of our mutuals, they, you know, I, I make a joke like, say, the um, the gun porn. Right. People talking about this gun and that gun and all their Gucci stuff. Guns are not it. Right. Like you should have one, whatever. But you can only, you know, they will not save you. They'll only save you in certain part. You can't eat a gun. You can't sleep on a gun, right. right? So it's much more than just like, oh, I'm going to have a gun and ammo. And how much ammo can you, you carry? Notice, you, you will notice that in all of my writings, guns are mentioned as just an accessory. Yeah. Skills are what you need. Exactly. You need the ability to find and produce, find and produce water. But the number one piece of preparedness gear that you will use the most and you can start using today is a first aid kit. Yeah. That is the first thing you need to have, especially if you're going to defend yourself with a gun, because if you can make holes in people, you need to uh, be able to patch holes in people. Especially if you get one of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right on. So we're, uh, this is going to be, like I said, a podcast of a chapter of the book per week. And we did this tonight to give people a chance to get it, to get the book. Joe, also, you also write articles several articles per week on your blog, which they can check out at tactical-wisdom.com. And we'll be here again next week for Tactical Tuesdays. So everybody needs to make sure to tune in. Any parting thought tonight for tonight, Joe? Well, um, a parting thought is prepare, prepare, prepare. And my books are available at either Amazon or on my website, either place. And when is the best time to prepare? Now. When was the, When was the best time to prepare? Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, didn't you say like five years ago or something? Well, five years ago is when you probably should have started really yeah. seriously. <laughs> That's when things started going downhill. Uh, yeah. And the next best time is today. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for the podcast and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. We'll see you. All right. Great.